Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our political institutions are failing and ideas to fix them. My name is James Walner, and I'm a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. Well, today we're going to talk about what everybody in Washington is talking about, and that's Liz Cheney. And we're going to ask in today's episode, should House Republicans fire Liz Cheney from her uh, leadership post? And our hope here is to help our listeners make sense of the debate that House Republicans are having over whether to oust Cheney from their leadership ranks. And to that end, we're going to talk about the job that party leaders play in Congress. We're going to talk about how they relate to presidents and in this case, former presidents. And we're going to talk about when it's okay for rank and file members to change their leaders. But before we do all of that, we need to first determine who Liz Cheney is exactly. What does she do? And why is it important? Why is she controversial? So Lee, can you help us with that? I will do my best. So uh, Liz Cheney is the number three ranking Republican in the House. And over the last few months, uh, she's really been pretty firm in her position that uh, the uh, election, in fact, was not stolen and that Trump is perpetuating a big lie and that this is bad for Republicans and other Republicans in the House, particularly uh, Leader McCarthy, I think, have grown incredibly frustrated with Liz Cheney for continuing to speak out on what they see as a issue that is uh, divisive within the, the caucus and uh, undermines what they see as the party's unity. And so we're recording this on, on uh, Friday, uh, May 7th, and the, the news uh, that, that I've been reading makes it pretty clear that Cheney is going to lose her, her position in leadership uh, and is likely to be replaced uh, with Elise Stefanik, uh, who's a, a congresswoman from New York. Anything else I'm missing here that you think you guys think is important? Well, you know, before we jump into this, I thought I think that's very good. And I would like to ask you and Julia what your priors are. You know, how are you currently thinking about this debate? Why do you think it's important? How do you make sense of it? Julia? I guess I've been thinking about this mostly in terms of the substance and not really in terms of the, the structural questions about the conditions under which parties should be able to replace their leadership. I don't really think it's, it's particularly you know, controversial that there would be contestation for leadership. Where I somewhat, you know, see this differently than you, James, is I, I don't actually see much of a debate happening <laughs> within the Republican caucus. I see it as a sort of discussion about, you know, on two, le- there's sort of two levels and neither of them is good. One is about the actual election, which is not, I mean, I was, talking to my students about this this week and i think a lot of us across the political spectrum agreed we've had we've had sketchy elections in the u.s and unclear ones and this just wasn't one of them um and that at a certain point even if it was it becomes important to accept the result and to accept a result even actually if there are questions about what happened during the election at a certain point the sort of succession kicks in and obviously this that point is long past um, and the other debate that I see is sort of a more raw version of that that is not even about the veracity of the claims, but actually about sort of the loyalty to, to Trump and Trumpism. And 
so I guess I just don't really see these as the kinds of debates that, that are had in a healthy system. I see them as, as not particularly substantive, as as disruptive, and as sort of being part of a larger problem of trying to really get the party stuck in the Trump years and in the you know the period between the, the 2020 election and Joe Biden's inauguration. I think in a healthy democracy, you sort of have to you sort of have to move on and that this is really disturbing debate again, not because, not because rank and file members don't have the right to choose their leaders or even to choose people who are more reflective of the party's mainstream opinion, but because this particular, the substance of this issue is so corrosive. So those are, that's sort of my prior. Well, I think it tells us a lot about the Republican party. Uh, and I think it tells us a few things. Uh, one, and echoing what Julia said here, is that the Republican Party has become an illiberal cult uh, around Trump and his uh, completely fabricated claim that the election was stolen from him. And that is, I think, something that is really new and distinct in the history of American political parties, uh, that th- there's not really a so much as a, an underlying platform or set of ideas uh, about policy, as we would traditionally think of a party having, but, you know, rather a singular fealty to uh, one leader and and a unproven uh and I think patently false allegation of a stolen election. Uh, and you know, this is, this is really, to me, a, a distinct break in the tradition of American political parties. The second thing is you know, about what the meaning of uh, conservative is. Uh, and you know, I think by most accounts, Liz Cheney is uh, is quite conservative on all of the sort of traditional policy dimensions that we would you know think about economics, foreign policy, uh, cultural issues, and you know was in fact uh, voted with Trump I think ninety five percent of the time. Whereas Elise Stefanik, uh, who's a relatively young, uh, I think she's thirty six. Uh, uh, years old, uh, member of the Republican delegation in the, in the House uh, from New York. She was, by uh, most accounts, more liberal, more moderate, at least, than, uh, than Liz Cheney. Uh, but uh, she is being elevated not for her policy, uh, but for her support of Trump, uh, which you know, suggests that I, I don't know what the I, what what conservative means. There was an interesting uh, and, and quite important new study uh, by Hans Noel and, and Dan Hopkins looking at what Republican activists thought uh, were the most conservative members, and you know, it was really defined by their loyalty to Trump as opposed to their their voting uh, records. Now, I mean, I think there's some questions about how how well voting records and DW nominate actually reflect conservatism. But I I think this is a a really strange moment in which, you know, it's hard to know what the Republican Party really means or stands for and what conservatism really is. 
And you know, Trump and support for Trump, I think, really fill a vacuum uh, in which there are lots of potential interesting debates on the right about economic policy, about immigration policy that are basically pushed to the side. Uh, and instead, Trump and support for Trump and support for the big lie, uh, you know, substitutes uh, for, you know, uh, substance because nobody can agree on anything else. Yeah, I think that if I'm you know, thinking about the debate over Liz Cheney, it's hard to get away from Donald Trump. But I want to try for a second and then we can dive into and try to better understand this dynamic between Cheney and the other House members. But, you know, setting aside Trump and setting aside the personalities, I just I, I personally love it whenever rank and file members remind the leaders that they work for them. I think that's awesome. We spend a lot of time talking about how centralized leadership in Congress is making the institution more dysfunctional. We, a lot of people on the left and the right and the center and academia and in the media wring their hands and bemoan that rank and file members don't take more ownership of the institution and don't do more. And I think right now we have an instance where you have people saying like, you know what? We don't like the job you're doing for whatever reason, good or bad, legitimate or illegitimate, smart or not. We don't like the job you're doing, and we want somebody else to do that job. Now, I think that's fabulous, just as a, as a general matter. I think another thing that the focus on Trump tends to obscure is that conservatives have a long history of uh, in, intense relationship with their leadership. And especially in recent years, going back to John Boehner, who was a past conference chair as well, um, who was ousted from leadership or retired under threat of being ousted. You've, you've seen an effort by conservatives to try to get into leadership, number one, or to, to try to mold leadership in, in a more acceptable fashion, whether that be getting more conservative people in leadership or getting people who are not as hostile to their kind of temperament, their tactics, or even their policy in leadership. And so I think that right now what we see playing out is an ongoing struggle over you know, from with conservatives and leadership over, look, there's an opportunity to take someone out of leadership who is not probably very friendly towards you and put replace them potentially with somebody who might be, who might be a voice in the room for freeing things up and making things more egalitarian. And so it's not exactly a question of substance. I don't know that, but that's typically the way that it's worked in the past. And so I think that draws our attention though to what do these people do, right? How should we think about the job that party leaders in Congress today perform and what job they have? And how has that job changed over time? Is it more or less visible or important than it has been historically? And, you know, Lee, let's start with you. What do you think about that? I have a few questions here. One is that, you know, I've read varying accounts about whether uh, rank and file members, uh, you know, would would uh, support Liz Cheney if it were a secret ballot. Uh, and, you know, I think a number of reports have said that they would, but that there's this sort of performative aspect of ousting uh, Liz Cheney as a show of their dedication to Trump and the, the cause of the of the big lie. So I think that's yeah, that's something that I mean we 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 have have to keep in mind when we're thinking about uh, this uh, particular ouster of Liz Cheney. The other aspect of um, thinking about leadership in parties in Congress is the question of whether the leadership should be 
unified or should represent the diversity of opinion within uh, the, the caucus. Uh, and, you know, I, I think there was a time in an earlier era of Congress, we might think about the, the Mike Mansfield era, since I know he's one of your favorite Senate leaders, James, uh, you know, in, in which the, the caucuses, both the Republican and the Democratic caucus, you know, were, were quite diverse in, in their, their opinions. And so leadership, uh, to the extent that there are different leadership posts, was a, was a way to kind of bring uh, different uh, factions, different perspectives, uh, you know, in, into key positions so that lots of different folks, uh, you know, within the party coalition could feel somebody was representing them. Now, uh, the way that folks are talking about leadership is that we all need to be on the same page and uh, the problem with Liz Cheney is that she's, you know, singing from a different songbook. And this lack of unity is undermining the ability of the party to win the next election. And winning the next election is the most important thing, rather than saying, you know, Republicans are a big tent party. And, you know, we have some people who think the election was was stolen and some people who are who are not. But what we want to focus on is not, you know, whether or not we want to carry grievances forward, but you know, we're going to focus instead on the policies that we think will help Americans uh, to live flourishing lives. Instead, you know, the Republican Party is signaling that the most important sign of unification is loyalty to Trump and perpetuation of this big lie. And rather than a having some unity on policy, you know, they, they'll, they're happy to promote somebody who is, you know, uh, has, has taken on some more moderate positions, but is distinguished by her willingness to, to, um, uh, support Trump. And I'm talking about, uh, Representative Stefanik here. Yeah. I think this gives us a really useful opportunity to talk about this idea and concept of leadership. So I, I generally, you know, under normal circumstances, James would agree with you that there is really important for people in leadership positions to realize they work for the people that they lead. On the other hand, though, I do think there's this element of leadership that is also about kind of fostering democratic principles. And I think that we're in a sort of crisis point. I would see this quite differently if the debate was about, you know, Liz Cheney departs from the party position on an issue, but this isn't that. It's not that. It's it's actually, I think, to get at something Lee was saying about elections and the importance of winning elections, it's, it's a party starting to drift away from the whole concept of elections and the idea that, that elections are sort of a, you know, they're uncertain and you can lose them sometimes. And I think that's... That's a real crisis point, and we have to understand the exercise of leadership in this sort of crisis context. And just as in some ways we might understand leadership under crisis or emergency as going beyond its usual bounds, that's that's also true here. And that exercising leadership is holding firm on the principle that our institutions determine who wins an election not our president, not one person, not a former president. And I know we're going to talk about the, the presidency angle in, in a bit. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about that. But I think that's a really critical principle. There's a critical principle that sometimes in a competitive system, you lose an election fair and square. And 
I'm just seeing that principle being really abandoned by Republicans. And our last episode, we talked to Jake Grumbach about about what's going on in the states. More states have passed voting laws, trimming back access to ballots. We're seeing this kind of movement away from um, the way that we've the way that we've allocated um, electoral college votes or determined them and talk about state legislatures. I don't know how far that will go or how realistic any of that will, will be, but, but it's all going in the same direction. And so I think to have, to, to be a leader in the Republican party right now is to first and foremost sort of establish what it is you're the leader of. And it's the idea that you're the leader of a party in a system where we accept these basic institutional principles and so i see her sort of leadership role at this at this crisis point as somewhat different than we might normally think about it as as a sort of you know as an agent of the of the rank and file who are the who are the principles and i think those are great observations you know i think there's no one way to lead it's important to keep that in mind and how you lead effectively changes over time in response to different environments there's also no one job, and this is key. There's lots of leadership jobs. In this instance, we're talking about the Republican Party, the House Republican Party conference chair, which the job is essentially to communicate and serve as the hub uh, for communicating the, the message that the party has as a whole, the lowest common denominator to members, right? And to, and to distribute that information. It's a messaging job. Uh, it also... I think underscores this challenge, my point about conservatives trying to get into leadership or get people that are more friendly towards them or even um, less kind of controlling. Because look, McCarthy's not necessarily, I mean, he wasn't conservative's first choice either, um, because it's it's the number three position. But after the leader, the minority leader, maybe the whip, the other leadership positions are pretty much um kind of, uh, you know, I don't want to say unimportant, but they don't really they don't really have an independent role there. They haven't exercised an independent role in a corporate capacity in a very long time. This is very exact same thing in the in the Senate as well. It really is dictated leadership, especially in the House, is dictated from on high and the and the leadership team on the Democratic side and the Republican side is really the, the tone of that team. The message of that team is, is set by the top the top spot. So what does that tell us? Well, I think we go back to Cheney and the first time the Republican Party voted on her uh, position in the in the leadership um, earlier this year. And then we look at why we are here now and we look at what she has done and what she has said, setting aside whether or not you think that's right or wrong. Essentially, it, it appears to be that she's not on the team, so to speak. And what do I mean by that? Is does she say you're all wrong and I'm right? Maybe there's a little bit about that. True. But what she's really doing, and I think this is why it's so disruptive from a leadership perspective, and maybe from a rank and file perspective as well, though not necessarily from a conservative perspective. What this is harmful, what makes this harmful is that she's exposing divisions within the party. She is emphasizing things that the party doesn't believe is helpful to them necessarily. Not that they're all anti-elections, but that, that she's exacerbating a debate over Trump that other party leaders have handled differently, right? So McCarthy, she accuses of doing an about having an about face on this issue. McConnell has just pretended like he'd ever said anything, right? Because the environment changed and now he's just kind of going along and keeping his head down, which is what he does. And she, on the other hand, drew a line in the set and said, no, you're either right or wrong. You're with me or you're against me. And as a leader, 
you know, as a statesman, that might be a thing to do. But as, a, as the number three ranking Republican, it's not the smartest thing to do if you want to keep your job. And it's not the smartest thing to do if you want to keep your job and slowly over time, try to use that position to either gain more influence over time and, and have a, a, a beneficial effect on the party or to kind of change things at the margins with the hope of slowly steering the party towards a better direction overall. And so again, this isn't a question of, I'm trying to separate you know, how we view the policy issue and then and try to say, what's the most skillful way to exercise leadership in this environment? And I'm not sure that, that Liz Cheney is showing us that. But you know, obviously Trump's making that very complicated for her. He's making that difficult. And you know, I, we can't, as much as I would like to talk about this in terms of very abstract structural things with party leadership, we have to talk about Trump. We've been talking about Trump. And so how does the job of a party leader change when a president or a former president of the same party is in the White House or has just left the White House or thinks they're still in the White House in this instance? I'm reminded of Albin Barkley and, and, and FDR who you know, Alvin Barkley took over party leader from Joe Robinson, and he went down to the Senate floor and he gave his speech saying, I have to resign my position because I can't carry the, the administration's water on this. And everybody shouted, like, no, no, we love you, Alvin, please stay. You know, but the idea of leaders being independent from the president is something that we haven't had in a while. Is that correct, Julia? I don't know. Can you help me understand this relationship a little bit better? Yeah, exactly. So great question. This is the question I spent like the first half of my, my semester teaching this class on the president in history is the name of the class this this semester and so we sort of made sense of this with with kind of three three key ideas and i did have them compare fdr to trump throughout throughout the semester so another piece that i reference a lot is this piece about president the sort of role of the president as party leader by daniel Klingard. Um, where he looks at Grover Cleveland and William McKinley and the sort of emergence of the president as a kind of person that sets the policy tone. But also he has this whole argument about the way in which presidents were able to use a kind of 19th century, this late 19th century campaign technology to build their own distinct political bases that they hadn't had before. I think one of the best ways to understand the president party relationship right now is to reverse that and say, okay, do members of Congress have their own independent political bases separate from the president and particularly separate from Trump? So I think that, I think that was, that's a, we start to see that erode with FDR, right? So FDR starts to really step into that role of, of trying to make himself and his set of ideas the party. I think it's a very long road to that being successful for presidents. Maybe, I think people debate about where to where to date that. Um, I think Ronald Reagan was really important in defining what the Republican Party was. What's interesting about that is how kind of vulnerable the party's definition was then to becoming personalized under under Trump. I think for Democrats, for Democrats, the coalition is always a little more complicated and it's always a little bit harder. But I think you do sort of see that where the, the Democrats find an identity in Obama <laughs> that they're really, really stuck to. And I think under those circumstances, under these circumstances where politics are very highly nationalized, 
where it's difficult for members of Congress to carve out their own distinct localized political bases, that the party does become really presidentialized. And I think this is really critical because our whole conversation about the president, about presidential constraint, I think is wrong. And if I can promote my own stuff, I just wrote a piece for a newsletter on democracy and autocracy about constraining the president. We think, we think, okay, who constrains the president? Like it was the Supreme Court or it's Congress in some abstract sense. And actually, a lot of historically, a lot of the constraints that presidents have faced have come from within their own parties. FDR is really the key case in point for that. And my students and I read a really lively account of FDR's attempts to impose discipline on his party from above in 1938 from Susan Dunn's book about uh, Roosevelt's Purge is the name of the book about that, that incident and compared it to how successful Trump was at kind of reading his party of dissenting voices, not just in Congress, but at sort of a state and local level. And I think, you know, that's a really, that's a really critical shift because truly the, the main source of constraint against parties has tended to be dissent in their own parties, has tended to be the, the extent to which other political actors in their own parties have political incentive structures and bases of of voter support that are separate from the president. Um, and the degree to which there are strong actors within the party who have their own political clout and who can push back. And that's where we really see Trump. I think Trump is a kind of inflection point. And this is, a, as I said, a long time coming and starting in the 1880s, you know, and with an important inflection point around FDR's effort to turn the Democratic Party into a New Deal party and to impose discipline on anti-New Deal members. But Trump really, Trump succeeded in a way that I don't think any other president before has really been successful at this. And so I think one of the most important elements of constraining a president in our system as it exists today is other party leaders who have their own clout. Liz Cheney is exactly the kind of person we would expect to see in this role because she's, you know, she's an at-large representative from a, a very Republican state. She's from a Republican family. She, you know, kind of does have her own distinct, her own distinct political base. This sort of Western conservatism that rep represents a slightly different flavor than Trumpism. And, and yet, you know, we see that this is just the system is making this difficult to have that kind of leadership. Now, Trump is obviously no longer in, in office, so maybe this is less pressing in that regard. But I do think that political analysts should pay less attention than we currently do to some of these more formal forms of constraint and more attention to the ways in which intra-party dissent has typically been an important means of checking the president. So I find this really, I mean, this is, I've been really like lathered about this all week. I was very excited to hear that we were, that we were going to talk about this. And this is, that's sort of the historical drive-by um, explanation as to why. Well, I love it whenever we talk intra-party dissent and what that means for our conception of polarized parties and partisan competition. But Lee, tell me what Julie is missing here. Tell me what I'm missing. Share your wisdom with us. Uh, yes, my wisdom. Always glad to share that. So, you know, I, I want to pick up on, on Julia's point about the, the role of uh, parties checking excesses of their party leaders. And I, I, I want to take this from Liz Cheney's perspective. 
I assume Liz Cheney is extremely sincere in her belief that uh, this focus on uh, a stolen election is both bad for our democracy and bad for the Republican Party. And so if I'm Liz Cheney, um, which I'm obviously not, but if I were, how should I go about this? You know, I think the the way that she thought about going about this was that she would use her her leadership role in the party to to elevate uh, her concerns and uh, and hope to to pressure her fellow par- fellow Republicans into sharing them. Um, you know, that's clearly not worked out for her. Uh, there's no talk that she might run for president. I don't imagine that she stands much of a chance. My advice to her would be to start a new party uh, and contest a, a few elections, knowing that she's her party would not win, but they would uh, do what third parties have historically done, which is they would help to, to force certain issues into the mainstream by uh, denying one party uh, some uh, essential votes. And, you know, effectively, the, the best way to keep the Republican Party from being the uh, fully a liberal Trumpist party would be to keep it out of power by, you know, winning 10, 15 percent of pivotal vote in, in certain elections, same with Adam Kinzinger and others, that, that that would be her best point of leverage at this point. But I'm curious what others think. Well, I mean, what given that party, James, as you say, and many others have noted that, you know, partisanship is about, you know, you describe the role as about being on the team and, you know, helping to carry forth the message. There's not much opportunity for dissent within the parties. So the only real opportunity for dissent is to to go outside of uh, the parties. Yeah, I think, I mean, both great observations and Going back to my kind of original point about differentiating between the the party leaders in the House and the leadership team. And, you know, there's not much opportunity for dissent, it appears, within the parties in the House, uh, technically. But there's a lot less opportunity for dissent once you join that team, once you go into that room, once you go into those leadership meetings. You're part of that team at that point. You see this with, with Mike Pence, who was a former conference chair who had a much different tone and demeanor and an approach to politics once he became the conference chair and a part of leadership than he did before. You see this with Jeb Henserling as well, who also adopted a very different kind of posture or bedside manner and, and started to stress different things. And I think that's what I find so interesting is that Cheney is saying, I don't care about that. And on one level, that's admirable. But I, but on another level, it's also that we shouldn't be surprised because that's not the way that this works. And then another thing that I, I, I want to, and this segues into my last question for you two, and, and as we wrap up here, about when it's okay to change leaders. You know, Cheney's making this about, and if you read her Washington Post piece, we'll put it in the show notes along with the other pieces, especially those that Julia mentioned. She's, she's forcing members to, to tackle something that she thinks is important. And she's prioritizing this issue about the stolen election. And she's saying to other members, this is more important than anything else. 
Other members may think that it's bad that, that Trump is going around talking about this still. They may not like it, but they may not necessarily think that it's that big of a deal anymore because now Trump is no longer in office. And the way to win an election moving forward is to stress unity and to not exacerbate this thing and not to continue to poke it. Now, I don't I'm, you both know I'm not exactly the biggest party person. I'm not necessarily a team player when it comes to politics. I, you know, I, I talk about Derrida a lot. And as a conservative Republican, that's not necessarily something that, um, you know, I'm not going to be in the leadership room anytime soon. Let's put it that way. But in trying to understand the dynamics of this, I still keep coming back to the fact that Liz Cheney as a conference chair doesn't seem to be making very smart leadership moves as in exhibiting skill as a leader. And I, I want to quote something that Jim Jordan said on Fox News recently and then turn it over to you two. He said, you can't have a Republican conference chair reciting Democratic talking points, right? Because the conference chair's job is to recite Republican talking points. You can't have a Republican conference chair taking a position that 90% of the party disagrees with, right? Well, because their job is to message. And you can't have a Republican Party chair consistently speaking out against the individual who 74 million Americans voted for. And this last point, I think, gets to Julia's points about the president is ultimately the leader of the party or the former president until they're replaced, I assume. And so we may disagree or agree with Jordan on the substance of what this debate is about. But in terms of the actual practice of leaders and, and picking leaders and changing leaders, is he wrong? Is it wrong that House members should should get a, a conference chair that that will recite talking points that they agree with the lowest common denominator, however odious that may be, or that will at least not talk about things that divide them? I mean, is, what am I missing here? Is that right or wrong? And uh, I want to, you know, let's let's go with you, Lee. Let's start. What do you think? Well, I, I think Congressman Jordan is certainly describing the expectations that Republicans in the House have of their conference chair. And, you know, given the way in which the role is defined, uh, you know, Cheney is clearly not being a team player. Uh, instead, she's using her role to elevate, as you say, the, the issue that she thinks is most important. And, you know, it is uh, bringing a fight. And, you know, it looks like she's going to lose that fight, but, you know, uh, she will perhaps find other ways to carry that fight forward. So, you know, certainly the party caucus and the, the leadership uh, above her is, you know, I mean, they can choose what to do. It's, you know, there's no hard and fast rule about how party leadership should should operate. It only operates, uh, you know, with the consent of the, the people who choose their leaders. I mean, I think there's a, a broader uh, question, you know, here, you know, about the the future of our democracy, and the future of the Republican Party. And again, I want to go back to a question that I asked before, and I'm really curious to hear, hear Julia's take on this, which is, you know, what should what should Liz Cheney do? You know, what should Adam Kinzinger do? What should the, you know, a small but vocal minority of Republicans who think that the con continuation and perpetuation of this, this loyalty to Trump and, and to election fraud is both harmful to the Republican Party and more importantly, I think, and correctly so, 
harmful to the continuation of having a, uh, a democratic republic in which we have free and fair elections that are widely considered legitimate. Yeah. So, I mean, this is an interesting question about what should they what should they do? And I guess for me, again, it goes back to kind of like leader leader of what? And again, I think we are really in emergency mode as far as having two parties that are that are committed to the basic principles of of the system. And I think also in what you were saying before, James, about the Democratic, the quote about the Democratic talking points. I mean, I think that phrase is, is doing a lot of work. I don't know what the antecedent is to that <laughs> phrase. Um, but it sounds to me like if you're referring to the idea that the election was was free and fair as a Democratic talking point, then we've really we've entered a new game. I think it, generally, I agree with you, Lee, that the ideal thing for Republicans who want to start a kind of conservative party that that is committed to basic principles of you know competition and alternation of power is to actually start contesting at the at the local level. I'm not really sure how practical and feasible that is but i do think that kind of i guess here's here's my here's my bottom line on that which i've been thinking about since the early years of the trump presidency which is that this group of republicans what they need to do most is coordinate um and that they weren't successful in sort of coordinating contestation against trump for the same reason that they weren't successful in keeping him from winning the nomination in the first place. They just weren't good at, they just weren't good at identifying collective goals and acting in concert for those goals. And it might mean making alliances across, you know, you have more moderate Republicans who have, who have been um, opposed to Trump. And then you have people like Ben Sass and Liz Cheney who were incredibly conservative, um, but also who have, who have, been upset about the way that the ways in which Trumpism threatens the integrity of the whole enterprise. And that's a very awkward alliance. And I, I get that. And it's very easy for me to sort of say as a, as a, as a college professor, you have to form weird alliances, but honestly, we do it here on campus too. Um, when, when issues are contested and like, that's how you have to do it. So I think one of the things to think about is how, how to develop a sort of coordinated group of people who are, a center right coalition who were who were devoted to that. You have the Lincoln Project. The Lincoln Project fundamentally is a, a different kind of political project, right? It is a kind of communicative political project. It's not a it's not a, a congressional caucus or something like that. I also think I mean, this is maybe not answering anyone's question, but I also think that one of our problems in American politics is that we have relatively few moments that really call for this kind of coordination. You see it for the majority party this kind of coordination is necessary to pass legislation. But if you're in the minority, you don't really like the only thing you have to coordinate on is being in the opposition. And that's, that's not that hard. And then every four years you have to pull out of that mess a, enough coordination to nominate a president. I think that is where the rubber will meet the road for, for Republicans. And if I were giving advice to the, to this faction, I would say not only do you need to coordinate and work together across other differences, but you need to be prepared essentially to have a rump convention because the Trumpist forces in the Republican party will be stronger and, you know, will nominate someone who you may, who you may not only not like, but see as a threat to the Republican, you need to be prepared to do what needs to be done to start another party that, again, sort of adheres to these these conservative principles. That's not what's at issue here, but also that's that's willing to play ball in the system and to reject demagoguery and authoritarianism. 
So that I think it's that it's that coordination piece that's so difficult to talk about. And that's my I, I'm happy to have that be my my final rant on the subject for the morning. Well, you know, I think this is such an interesting topic because it highlights elections and, and the importance of kind of free and fair elections. It, it highlights communication. It highlights the role that, that the media plays and that messaging and narrative plays in our politics. It highlights the kind of the separation of powers issues and the and parties and presidents. And it also highlights, I think, in a, in a different way, the, this idea of leadership skill, separate and apart from the kind of substance of the question as well. And these are all things to wrestle with. There are no clear answers any one way or the other. And hopefully today we helped uh, you all make better sense of it. I, I think I'm a little bit clearer now after listening to Julia and Lee uh, share their wisdom with me. So with that, uh, this has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. From dark money to slush funds in Congress, from gerrymandering to foreign interference in our elections, the Swamp Stories podcast from Issue One explores the swampiest practices in DC that repulse Democrats and Republicans alike. You can hear reform leaders, elected officials, and experts from across the political spectrum discuss the culture of cash and corruption in DC and how we can fix this broken system. Listen to Swamp Stories on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find the show at swampstories.org.